This is David Tarkington, pastor of First Baptist Church of Orange Park and the First Family Network. You are listening to the teaching ministry of our church. Thank you for downloading this sermon. If you have any questions about the church, go to firstfam.org or call us at 904-264-2351. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts. Surprise, surprise, we're going through the book of Acts. 37 weeks, we've made it to 11th chapter. That's pretty good for my schedule. So 11 chapters in the book of Acts. We're at chapter 11, beginning in verse 1 today. And uh, just, just the challenge, you know, as, as you're finding that in your Bible, we, I've, I've been teaching through and preaching through um, different books of the Bible, verse by verse, as is the case over the years. And, and, uh, and it takes a while sometimes to get through an entire book. And, and sometimes we'll take a pause and go to another one as the Lord leads. Um, but expositional preaching is sometimes considered that, just verse by verse, but there's more to it than that. If we're not careful, uh, if I'm not careful, uh, just preaching verse by verse does not mean we're, we're, we're preaching expositionally, and so if, not, if we're not careful, we're just giving you a narrative, and we're just kind of walking through a story, and that's not the intent. In your small group, in your life group, you've had that. You've had that teaching, story by story, teaching by teaching. But in the preaching of God's word, we are looking at what God is saying in the fullness of his word as it is expressed in this section of the book of uh, Acts today or in his Bible. And so uh, a discerning year on your part is to, to seek out and to, and to hear what God would have you hear today. More than just let's follow Peter through another narrative and see what happens next. There has to be more to it than that. There has to be that understanding that God's living word, his holy inspired word, is there for us, for his glory, for our good, and more than just a teaching. So I take you to Acts chapter 11 again. Verse 1, it is Peter, that is the character that we have been following here for the last few weeks, but this is more than a narrative. It says here that now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. Those Jewish believers in the church in Jerusalem are the ones that greeted him and met him. They criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, six Jewish believers that were with him accompanied me. And we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house and said, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter, and he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, Who was I that I could stand in God's way? 
When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Well, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So Peter is speaking here. He's recounting the story of his meeting with Cornelius that took place in Caesarea, the Gentile centurion who had called for him. He has been confronted by Jewish believers, and all the narrative kind of comes to a fruition at this point. I don't know uh, if any of you have recently bought a new car or a new-to-you car. I mean, this is something that every now and then just has to happen. Our, our uh, practice in our family is we like to own a vehicle until the wheels fall off. And then we will take it in, and they will give us a $3 credit, and we'll get another used vehicle, and we'll drive it until the wheels fall off. And, and so most recently, I, many of you know, I used to have a, a, a nice little secret undercover look like a police car, but I don't have that any longer. It, it, I took it in, and I said, well, this is broken, and this is broken. And the guy that came in, he looked at me, and he said, well, you've, you've driven it well. And... Uh, he said, it's going to cost more to fix it likely than it's worth. And I said, okay, we're at that point. So I got a new vehicle. This was a, not a while back. This isn't recent. And I'm not a car person. I mean, I, I, I just never have been. I, I, I like certain vehicles. I think, well, that's really nice. That's really cool. I remember years ago when I was in high school, my boss bought a Corvette. And I thought, man, that'd be really something to have a Corvette. And I got in it once, and, I, and that was it. It took three days to get me out of it. It was, uh, you know, when you're 6'7", and you're riding, laying down in a Corvette, and you're like this the whole time, you realize you're just not built for certain vehicles. So um, my parents also, they, they, the first car that they got for me, uh, I didn't pick it out. I, I wouldn't have picked it out, but the Ford Pinto lasted well throughout high school, and it, it did increase my prayer life. I just prayed nobody would run into the back of it, and that was, it, some of you are old enough to know why. So, um, but, but I've never really been a car person to say, oh, that's incredible. That year, that model, that make, that looks really good. I know a nice car when I see it, but I let other people own those. So when I got this, uh, I have a GMC Terrain. Now, I didn't even really know what a GMC Terrain was. It's not a really big vehicle. It's efficient. It's, it's like a mini, I don't even know, a crossover. I think that's what they call it. It's the GMC version of the Chevy Equinox. I'm not selling these today. I get no points for this. I'm just telling you what I own. So we're at the lot, and I said, well, here's one. It's not that old. It's got a few miles on it. Looks like it's in pretty good condition. It's got a few bells and whistles. It makes it nice. It, uh, it only had three floor mats, but I could live with that. So we bought it, and I drove that GMC Terrain off the lot that day. And, and lo and behold, guess what, I, guess what I saw on the road as I was driving home? Another GMC Terrain. I'd never even seen this car before in my life. I did not know it existed. I didn't care that it existed. But now I see them everywhere. You ever notice that when you buy a vehicle? You think, oh, I don't know, this looks pretty nice. And then you're driving around, and you go, oh, there's one, there's another one, there's this, there's that. I'm not so caught up that I have to be the only one with a certain vehicle, but I just don't want to be embarrassed in the parking lot of Walmart <laughs> trying to get in the wrong one because they're all over the place. So uh, there's a commonality in that. And, uh, and you soon realize that most car uh, manufacturers make more than one. So other people buy them as well. And they're all over the place. And you'll start seeing what you purchase. It's the same with other items as well. But there's, there's a sense of, you know, you, don't you sometimes want to be the, the only one to have something special, you know? And uh, you ever think you own something that was unique and then you look it up on eBay and realize you thought it was priceless and it's selling for 10 bucks and no one's bidding on it? And you're like, well, I guess they're more common than I thought. To a degree, the Jewish Christians that were in Jerusalem in the early church, they had totally surrendered to Jesus Christ. They had 
said yes to him as Lord of their life. They had been raised in their, in their heritage and in their culture and their religion to be looking forward to the coming of Messiah and the prophecies had come true and they believed it and they said yes. And God had redeemed them and rescued them and he had started his church. That moment at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes down upon those that are in the city of Jerusalem is an amazing moment that changes everything. And to become a Christian was not easy. I mean, it was easy to become a Christian, but it wasn't an easy life. You're now kind of ostracized. Uh, guys like Stephen are being martyred for their faith. So it's not become a Christian because you'll get more votes for something. It's actually just the opposite. But that's this unity that had developed among the church in Jerusalem. And as unified as they were at that level and as, as happy as they were that the Messiah had come and they had seen it happen and they had surrendered to Jesus Christ, Apparently, they had not yet come to the understanding that Jesus was for everybody. For they had no concept, nor understanding, and nor desire to see Gentiles join God's church. And even Peter was not quite there yet until this moment. And so when you, when you kind of look at this, there's a bit of that, I thought we were the only guys that had this, and now I'm seeing Jesus everywhere. Apparently, he's available to all. And it's much more important than a new car but it's a faith that is made available to those who would surrender. And that's what you're seeing here at this point is a shifting of understanding. Peter, the, um, the other apostles, and the brothers in Jerusalem, the members of the church at this time, meaning those who were of Jewish heritage, had fully surrendered to the Messiah. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And they were good with this until they realized others who were not like them were also invited in these uncircumcised Gentiles, as it's referenced here. It was not a small adjustment for Peter. It would not be a small adjustment for the other believers and the brothers. But when Peter was confronted with this, he began to recount the entire stories of all that we have been talking about the last few weeks, of how God had met him in Joppa, how Cornelius had sent these individuals to him through a vision, had been obedient and sent these men to him, had brought him down to Caesarea, that Cornelius' entire family was there, and what Peter is acknowledging is that what happened at Pentecost to the Jews in Jerusalem also happened in Cornelius' house to the Gentiles in Caesarea. The Spirit of God came down upon them, and those that were there to be able to see it were amazed. And now he's just making his way back home. He's heading back to Jerusalem, and he is confronted. You look at this, and you realize that there are some things that are relevant for us today, some things that we should take to heart, some things that we should know as as, as our goal as Christ followers, as Christians and sons and daughters, that we, like Peter, should be willing to, to listen to the word of God and listen to God's voice. Peter listened. Peter was an instrument of God. Peter was continually being sanctified, and I know that's a churchy term, but if you'll kind of look at it this way, when Peter was saved, he was truly saved, and he was eternally secured in his salvation, just like you as a Christian have been eternally secured that your home in heaven is there for you, awaiting you. It is, you will not lose that salvation but that moment of salvation, that new birth moment, is a moment on your timeline. It did not, you didn't slide into it. You didn't merge into traffic. You surrendered your life to Jesus Christ at some point. And I'm talking to Christians because some of you here haven't yet done that. But to the Christians in the room, you did, and you know you did. But since that point, God wasn't finished with you. In fact, if you look at it in just, uh, uh, here's an illustration. If an infant is born, and they're cute, and they're helpless, and they need someone to change their diapers, they can't walk, can't talk, can't do much on their own, 
except cry and, and just kind of lay there and they're cute. That's really cute for a season, but it wouldn't be cute if the child remained like that for the next 40 to 50 years. Now, I know that happens on occasion. I understand that. I'm not minimizing that. But the cuteness disappears because the challenge is there. As Christians, it's not cute to become a Christian and remain a baby Christian for the remainder of your spiritual journey. So what God does is he is whittling some things away out of your life. He is is, uh, refining you. He is, here's the word, sanctifying you. He is making sure you understand things about him and about what it means to walk in the Spirit and to walk in Christ. That's what was happening in Peter's life. Peter was a very godly man. Peter was a leader in the church. Peter preached at Pentecost. Peter baptized people. Peter had it all figured out but didn't and realized in Joppa that there were things that he thought were the way they were until God revealed, you've got this part wrong, Peter. And God was sanctifying him to bring him to a point of maturity. And that we are... And and I've heard it said this way, as a Christian, you were saved at the moment of salvation, at that moment of new birth, but we are being saved as God sanctifies us throughout our entire life. And at that moment when our time on earth is over, we are glorified and are ultimately saved as we are brought home to heaven. One of our long-time church members this morning, I just got word, again, another, died today, early this morning. Faithful man of God. Had a moment years, years, years ago, decades ago, where he surrendered his life to Christ. Walked with the Lord as you are, even I today am walking with the Lord. But today, he was glorified in the moment where God said, come on home. Praying for that family as they grieve the loss and for the church as we minister to them. But this is the life story of all of us. Sanctification. Walking in Christ. Let 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 me shift gears for just a moment to reference something that some of my brothers and I have talked about on Monday mornings. We have a group of men that gather at uh, Maple Street Biscuits uh, every Monday for prayer and for study. We're studying the book of Colossians. We've been in the book of Colossians for a number of weeks. Uh, It's not a closed group. You're welcome to join us. Uh, We meet at 7 a.m. But we are sitting there drinking coffee, eating biscuits, and solving the world's problems. That's what guys do when they gather for breakfast. We've got all the answers. But actually what we're doing is we're digging into the book of Colossians. And the book of Colossians is a letter written to the church at Colossae by Paul the Apostle, and he writes this letter to a church he had never attended, but one he'd heard of. And he had friends that went there, and he knew what was going on, and he writes it as a, as a, as a challenge and an encouragement and, and some warnings, as much of his letters in the New Testament are. But there is this passage in Colossians 2 that really I, I haven't been able to kind of get over. Let me read it to you, verses 6 and 7. Paul writes, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, again, it's a message to Christians, just as you received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. Now, I don't know if you like highlighting things, but that's worth underlining or something, putting a star by that. Walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, key word thanksgiving, But when I read that, I I, I caught that phrase, walk in Christ. And that's a little bit different verbiage than often we hear. Because we will say things like, well, I'm walking with Jesus. But that's not what it says. There's a lot of people walking with Jesus but aren't walking in him. And there's a lot of difference between walking with him and walking in him. So often we promote the concept of walking with Jesus. Maybe it sounds good in the little songs and the ditties that we sing, but walking in him is much deeper on the surface with Christ is fine but as a follower of Jesus 
I think we need to dig a little deeper. Otherwise, what happens? We're basically praying a prayer, getting baptized, and living, an, living our entire lives as baby Christians, never maturing. And while it may be cute for a season, it's sad for a lifetime. Walking in Christ. Christians receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord, surrendering him, serving fully, submitting completely in obedience, walking in Christ, reveals that you are rooted well and you are ready to withstand all that the enemy in the world tempts you with, throws at you, seeking to confound and confuse you. Have you ever met a Christian that's totally confused about things? You have to ask the question, who's the author of confusion? It's not the Savior. So the enemy throws those things at us, and being with Christ is much different. It sounds like you're just hanging out with Jesus, having coffee, being with him. If Jesus is your buddy rather than your Lord, I question whether you are saved. Now, I know you want to have a friend in Jesus, and there are scriptures and verses that reference that, but I think so much of our evangelicalism that has been watered down in our culture today wants our friend in Jesus a little more like Buzz and Woody are buddies. And I have a friend in him. I think what we need to look at is the difference in with and in. Rather than your buddy Jesus, being in Christ means he's your Lord. And this is so that you'll be able to stand solidly when the winds of change come. Has this been a year of change? I, yeah, and guess what? It's not ending. I've already looked it up. I researched it on Wikipedia. 2020 lasts 65 months. I looked it up. So hang on. We, we, things are longer this year. Election day lasted a week. It may still be going. Who knows? Things last longer. It's a year of change. There are lies that the world gives you. And the lies are based on humanism or an ungodly spiritual, spiritism of the age. There, there is a spiritism that reigns. To walk in Christ enables you to overflow in thanksgiving. Now, I know Thanksgiving is coming up, and that's a holiday we celebrate every year, and it's a wonderful holiday where everybody eats a lot and takes long naps in the afternoons and watches football teams they don't care for. I know that's what we do, and we serve people in our community, but Thanksgiving for Christians has to be more than a day. It has to be something that overflows within us because where there, if you're wondering where you're walking with Christ, check your thanksgiving meter. Are you thankful for what God has done? Or are you lamenting all that is being done to you? Woe is us, it's never been this bad. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing might be a better response. Thank you, Lord, for doing something that I cannot see. And thank you, Lord, for not asking my permission to do it. There's something bigger going on here, folks. Thankfulness reveals if you walk in Christ because it allows you to be thankful for all he has done, is doing, will do, trusting that God does actually know best, allowing your self-declared worry to be removed. There are a lot of people worried nowadays. I, I find it interesting in this, I don't know if you knew this, this is an election year. You might have noticed. And there are a lot of well-meaning, evangelical, Bible-believing Christians that have been spewing stuff for the last few months like, God is in control. God is sovereign. God never makes mistakes. And, they, and it's almost like they believed it until things didn't turn out the way they wanted them to. And what was revealed is 
Maybe a little sense of idolatry they didn't want to admit they had. God is in control except when he does things I don't approve of. He's either in control or he's not in control. He's either sovereign or he's not sovereign. He's either God, big G, or he's God, little g. And it's a really challenging thing when you think of this. To walk in Christ melts your worry away. Well, I'm just so worried. Let me, let me help you understand what you just said. I'm just such a sinner sinning purposefully because my worry says I don't trust God to be God. Now, we all fall in that trap. I do too. But worry is not a spiritual gift. Remember that. Sometimes, I guess what we need to understand is walking in Christ keeps us from falling prey, as Paul would write later to the Colossians, falling prey to the empty philosophies and elemental spirits and New Age spiritualism and worldviews that look spiritual but are void of Christ. And we're still facing that today. Peter was in Christ, not just with Christ. He was walking in Christ. He was being molded and made into the man God intended him to be. God had a plan for Peter before Peter ever met Jesus. God had a plan for Peter when Peter had a plan himself to just continue fishing on the Sea of Galilee and build his business well. God had a plan that was different than Peter's. And when God interacted with him and God encountered him, when Jesus met him, God called him to himself and Peter began to be molded and made into the man that God desired him to be for the moment we just read about and others. It was in this moment of clarity where God renewed Peter's calling and declared to Peter that the gospel was for all. We spoke of it last week. We remember it today. And Peter reminded us all of the entire encounter as he referenced it to the brothers awaiting his return to the city. So if we're going to say Peter was walking in Christ, and that's a good model, and we're going to say, hey, church, you and I, brothers and sisters, we need to be sure that we're walking in Christ, maturing in the faith in Christ, obedient to the Bible and with a worldview that works in Christ. And then when we do that, here are some promises. Here are some things that will happen. This gets very encouraging right now. Here's the first thing you can bank on. You walk in Christ and one, you will be criticized. Isn't that fun? It's not a may be criticized. It is a will be criticized. And while we would like to think that those that are critics to us, those that will be critical of you walking in Christ, those that will be critical of you being unapologetic in your faith in Jesus and the love you have for him and the love you have for others, while we would like to think that that criticism comes mainly from the ungodly, unregenerate, pagan, new age, self-worshipping, God-ignoring, agnostic, atheistic world, the fact of the matter is that often the criticism comes from those who are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Those that go to church with you or go to another church of like, like uh, doctrine, that is the issue because when Peter made it back to Jerusalem, it wasn't the Pharisees critical of him. It wasn't the pagans critical of him. It was the brothers that were critical of him and the apostles who were critical of him. Understand, it's not a gray area. <clears throat> it's right here in black and white. Peter the apostle one of the twelve, a leader in the early church, a man walking in Christ, is confronted and criticized by the brethren. By those who would likely declare that they were trying to protect the gospel from those misusing it. While still 
actually misusing it. And in case you think it's a history story, you've not been on social media recently. Evangelicals are beating themselves up online like it's a game. Declaring who gets in and who doesn't get in and who's the right kind of Christian and who's the wrong kind of Christian and who acts accordingly and who doesn't and who shouldn't be allowed in church and who should be allowed in church. It's not the world taking out the church. It's the church taking out the church. Now there's doctrine that matters and there are teachers that teach false doctrine. Address it. But then there are believers. People you're going to have a room next to in the, in the house of God for eternity that we are spewing hate toward one another even now. You will be criticized when you walk in Christ. Secondly, though, when you're criticized, you will have to clarify. You will have to clarify what you mean. Criticism is not always bad. You've heard of constructive criticism, right? You ever met people that love to give constructive criticism? Be wary of those who declare they're giving you constructive criticism. They tend to just want to give you criticism. And they construct it in a way that you feel like you have to receive it. Constructive criticism comes from somebody who likes you, loves you, wants to help you. And it often does not come publicly. It usually comes privately. A little bit like, hey, uh, I know what you said. It sounded like you said this. I'm not sure that's what you meant. You might want to use a different term, and please quit wearing that shirt. You know, that kind of stuff. It's just constructive, right? Constructive criticism is helpful. It doesn't mean I like it. It just means it's helpful. But then there's critical criticism, and I know that's a redundancy, but you understand what I mean. People who criticize just for the sake of criticizing. When Peter makes his way back to Jerusalem, he's met with a group by a group. Oh, it's the apostles, it's the brethren. Oh, I'm so glad to see you. And the first thing they said was not, oh, we're so glad to have you back in town, was, hey, we heard, we heard what you did. We don't like it. And Peter said, you probably didn't catch me, he said, oh, good to see you too. Peter faced a barrage when he made it back to Jerusalem and it was not a welcome party, it rather was a how could you do that party. But here's the good news. Peter knew he had to clarify regarding the accusations and the criticism he was receiving. And in verse 4, it said, Peter began and explained to them in order. And he went through the story. He said, basically, you don't have the full story, guys. All you know is I had dinner with Cornelius in his house, and now you're mad. But you don't know how I got to his house, nor do you know that I really didn't want to go to his house you have no idea about the vision God gave me. You had no idea about the angel that appeared to him. You haven't heard the full story. Let me tell you what really happened. Because you're getting it, apparently, secondhand, thirdhand. The rumor mill is spreading. See, it's not a new thing. So when you are walking in Christ, you have to have the wherewithal and the peace within yourself to take a deep breath at times and say, can, can I clarify? Now, you also need to understand that sometimes the critics don't want to hear it. Sometimes they just want to criticize. So, so don't cast your pearls before swine in that case. But when the time is right and the opportunity is given, clarify, and I know this is, again, redundant, clarify clearly, speak truth, and tell the story well. 
He shared the entire story of the vision, the meeting, the, re- the reception of Cornelius, how Cornelius' family was given the gift of the Holy Spirit, and how Peter said, and we saw it, and the six brothers with me, they saw it, you saw it, didn't you? We saw it, we saw it, we saw it, we saw it, we saw it. And all the apostles are going, really? Just like Pentecost, but it happened there. It was amazing. That's what Peter tells them. Peter says, you know, here's what I've begun to realize. That Jesus, when he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, that he really is, and he's the way, the truth, and the life for everybody, not just us, not just the Jews, not just the ones that, that sound like us, look like us, have the same heritage, went to the same high school, are a part of the same political party. No, he's for all of us. Same Jesus. No different. I love when God reveals this to the apostles and the brothers through Peter's words. Look at verse 17. This is how Peter wraps it up. And I, I just, this, this is, I've, I've highlighted this in three colors just so I wouldn't miss it. If then God gave the same gift to them, there's always a them, that he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, here's Peter, who was I? Who was I that I should stand in God's way? When Peter said that, he says, they heard these things, they fell silent, they glorified God, saying, well, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. The critics began to understand and then they began to celebrate but here's the thing we also need to understand you're going to walk in christ you're going to be criticized you're going to walk in christ you got to have you got to have clarity in how you explain what's going on you're going to walk in christ you need to be willing to comply with the commands of god comply with the commands peter says who is i that i could stand in god's way Well, who was he? Well, they could say, well, you're Peter. You're the leader of the apostles. You're the leader in the early church. You've done miracles. You've done amazing things that Christ, Christ has given you such responsibility. You are the anointed. But Peter himself didn't say, I'm a celebrity pastor. That's not what he said. Peter himself didn't say, oh, don't, don't, just don't ever, uh, um, say anything negative about me. That's not what he said. Peter said, who am I? Who am I that I could stop what God is doing? Peter was not randomly chosen, by the way. He was called by God. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Peter was in Christ. And while in Christ and being sanctified and matured in faith, he invited some people to join the family that prior to Joppa, he would never have talked to, nor had wanted in his group. He invited people not like him to be saved just like him. In 2011, Patrick Johnstone published a book, or he wrote uh, this research, compiled it. It's published by Biblica, which I think may be the publishing arm that does a lot with the NIV nowadays. But this book came out in 2011. So 2011, I mean, it might as well be a century ago now, but it was very helpful at the time. A lot of graphs, a lot of research, a lot of compiled information. Title of the book was The Future of the Global Church. And he gives some statistics and their maps and, you know, what's the church doing here in the underground church and in Asia and South America and the persecuted church and the post-Christian, the millennial, all these different things. But every now and then throughout the book, there'll these little boxes pop up and are on the page and it says burning question. And he would have a little thing say, here are some things based on the statistics, based on the information, based on the data we have. These are questions we can't avoid, we can't ignore, and we can't presume someone else is going to answer, we meaning, meaning the church. Here on one page, he he wrote this. 
He wrote, obedience is called for in the 21st century. Let me just pause. Obedience and submission are signifiers that you're walking in Christ. Just go ahead and know that. If you're walking in Christ, you're obedient to Christ. If you're walking in Christ as a church, you're being obedient to his calling. Obedience is called for in the 21st century if we are to complete the Great Commission. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, also found in Mark's Gospel where Jesus said uh, to go into all the world and make disciples, and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that he will be with us always. That's the Great Commission. If we are to complete the Great Commission, we must be obedient. He says this, for most churches today, missions still remains an optional extra, a fad, an inconvenient relic of the colonial era, not a central reason for the existence of the church. Others define mission as any ministry activity aimed at the mostly local unchurch. What he means by that is that churches just will come up with community events and call them mission events. They're not mission events if there's no mission attached to it, if it's just an event. And they normally are local only. And let me just pause and go over here. Often we use this in our vernacular. We say, hey, the church has a mission. That's probably backwards. The way it probably should be read is the mission has a church. So for making the mission optional and turning it into local projects only that reach unchurched is good, but, it, it, but John Stone continues, says, we ignore activity aimed at the global discipling of peoples required by the Great Commission and Acts 1.8. And then he offers these three burning questions. Why has the Great Commission become the great omission for most of the church? Two, can the congregation or can any congregation that does not make Jesus' last command, the Great Commission, fundamental to the global ministry, even claim to be truly biblical and evangelical? Third, how biblical is your congregation, training institution or agency with regard to the last command of Christ? These are burning questions, certainly, and ones that remind us as Christians, as believers, as followers of Jesus, that even in the age of pandemics, Frustrations, battles over politics, self-worship disguised as fighting for my personal rights, and longing for a return to normal. Have you heard anybody say that? I can't wait till we get back to normal. Heard anybody say that? Now, if you've said it, just nod your head like you heard someone else say it, because you know I'm going to talk about it. This longing for normal isn't, a no, isn't really, I don't know what normal was. I guess it was February. But it's not like we were knocking it out of the park in February. It's not like the evangelical church in America was riding high and finding great success in February. But people so want to get back to normal, which is probably just code for, I want to go out and not wear a mask and I don't want tape on pews anymore. That's probably what they mean. But normal. They're, they're looking for, I don't know, faith in a, in a vaccine. I, I get that. You know, when the vaccine comes, we'll have, I, I don't know where you are with the vaccine, but I'll let you be the lab rat, and I'll wait and see what happens to you. When it comes, I mean, I'm not lining up first. I can't wait to be the first one to take it. No, I can't wait to be alive after I take it. So, no, I'm not lining up first for whatever vaccine. And, um, and I told somebody, I said, COVID-21 is probably the sequel we're looking at. Who knows? It's not like we're just going to, hey, it's all over. Normal is not so much normal that we long for as the routine we had developed that we long for. 
I found one group in the Bible that longed for normal. They were followers of God that became disgruntled. They were led by a godly man that was called by God for a specific task, and when they found themselves in the wilderness saying, I don't like it anymore, can we just go back to Egypt where we used to be slaves? At least it was normal. And I don't know if that's a good equation to what's going on right now, but let me just encourage you as best I can to say, let's, let's quit trying to go back to anything. When God has put us moving forward towards something much better. Now you go, I don't know where that is. Well, I don't either, but the good news is I don't have to because I still believe that God is sovereign. And I still believe he didn't get sidetracked by a pandemic. So God is doing something here, and we worship a God, much like the Israelites in the Old Testament, the same God who is not silent, who is not distant, who is not absent in the midst of all that we face. In fact, in the midst of the confusion and the feelings of fear and worry, God is and remains the only solid foundation that we have. So while Peter was thrust into a moment of mission work he did not ask for, where he had to share the gospel with a Gentile, what is God doing to the church here today? Positioning us to share the gospel with those that we're going to have to even find new ways to have face-to-face conversations with. And, and what about those that, that we would not pick to belong to our group? You might be going, well, you know, that's the Jews and the Gentiles. They've been divided, all the Jews and Gentiles. Well, let me help you with a little comparative analysis here. Pick the reddest Republican and the bluest Democrat. Can they go to the same heaven? And some say no, and I'd say, well, according to this, the ground at the foot of the cross has nothing to do with your political persuasion, and God can save the conservative, and he can save the liberal, and he does it the very same way, through Jesus Christ. And let me go ahead and declare in case you missed this one a lost really red republican goes to the same hell as a lost really blue democrat because our own morality or decisions pale in comparison to that which only god can do and that is make us holy see who gets invited into the family is God's decision, not ours. God is just telling his church, don't let the great commission be the great omission. You've got to tell others. You notice what I noticed about Peter and Cornelius' encounter? Cornelius did not become a follower of Jesus because he was riding in a chariot behind Peter's camel that had a fish sticker on the rear end of it. Peter actually had to talk to the guy. Pseudo-witnessing is not enough. Wear a Jesus shirt in public. Not enough. Conversation. Engagement. Sharing. Oh, I'll let other people do that. Fine. Just go ahead and sit in your immature state as a Christian who refuses to grow. You're going to walk in Christ, or are you just going to sit still? Let us be certain to walk in Christ, for it is for God's glory and our good. Father, I thank you for the word. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the challenge that's offered before us, and I confess my sin of liking to pick who gets to belong and who doesn't. 
based on my own desires and my own wants. But Lord, you have told us today and you've reminded us once more that the people that need to hear the gospel are people that look just like us and those that look nothing like us. Are people that speak with the same language we speak and those who speak a different language. Are those who live in the same neighborhoods we live in, but also those that live in neighborhoods far from where we live. Father, it is those who are on the same economic status we are in in whatever category we've been placed and those who are above and much below us. Father, who gets invited in has nothing to do with the barriers and boundaries we've developed. May we see people the way you see people. And then, Father, forgive us for pretending someone else will talk to them. Help us to grow, to be sanctified, and may we walk in Christ today. For it is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, thank you folks for being here today, those that are online as well. If you have any questions, you have concerns about membership, baptism, you want to talk more about what it means to be in Christ, we would love to have that conversation. We'll be here to see you at the end of the service here at the end if you want to come see us. Those online, please contact us through our website or email or give us a call here at the church. Don't leave what God is calling you to do left undone. God bless you today. I hope you have a great rest of the week. We'll see you uh, next Sunday morning.